The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Joshua, from chapter 17, beginning at verse 7. The territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Michmethath, which is east of Shechem. Then the boundary goes along southwards to the inhabitants of En Tapua. The land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapua on the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. Then the boundary went down to the brook Canar. These cities to the south of the brook, among the cities of Manasseh, belong to Ephraim. Then the boundary of Manasseh goes on the north side of the brook and ends at the sea. The land to the south being Ephraim's and that to the north being Manasseh's, with the sea forming its boundary. On the north, Asher is reached, and on the east, Issachar. Also in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Beth Shean and its villages, and Ibleam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Tarnak and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. The third is Napha. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a great and numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, yet... All the Canaanites who dwell in the plain of chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Let's pray, shall we? Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that smashes the rocks into pieces? We confess this is true, merciful God, and we ask, therefore, that you would burn and smash among us as your spirit deems necessary, as we have this opportunity this morning to hear your voice speaking in those scriptures which the Spirit inspired. So teach and shape us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit, and let me add my welcome also to uh, especially the family and friends of the uh, Schott family. It's wonderful to have you with us, and we hope you have a a wonderful time worshipping with us today. And welcome little Lily Marie to the covenant people of God. So the title for today's sermon is actually taken from one of the sayings of Jesus in Luke 12. You remember that Jesus tells a series of parables in which he is instructing people concerning how they are to live in the times in which God has placed them as they await his return, the return of the master. And Luke 12, 48, the climax of that section, Jesus says... From those to whom much is given, much will be required. And just to break down today's sermon into the simplest possible form, 
my contention is that much has been given to us here in America, much has been given to us here at All Saints, and therefore much is required, much is demanded, literally, much is expected of us, much faithfulness is expected, much sacrifice, much commitment, much godliness is required of us, much wisdom, much gratitude, much generosity is required of us. And I want to take a few minutes as we begin, uh, before we come to Joshua, and I promise that what I'm about to talk about is extremely relevant to the passage we've just read, just to sketch the situation uh, of Christians across the world in order to place our experience of the Christian faith in its proper context. According to an extensive report published in March 2022 by Open Doors USA, Christianity is, quote, the world's most persecuted religion. 360 million Christians live in countries where persecution is significant. Now, of course, that raises the question, what does significant mean in that context? And it varies from place to place. Open Doors publishes a list of the 50 most dangerous and hostile countries for Christians across the world. And that's quite something when you think about it. There are only 193 countries in the United Nations, and over a quarter of them apparently make this list. It wasn't a list of 10 or a list of 5, it was a list of 50 in order to include all the ones where persecution is at least significant. So the least extreme on the list, just to put it in perspective, Malaysia comes in 50th on the list. In Malaysia, most states prohibit evangelism to Muslims. People who show interest in the gospel are sent to state-run, and I quote, faith rehabilitation centers in order to help them to avoid changing their minds and following Jesus. Some states actually impose civil penalties or criminal penalties for Muslims who convert to Christ. Number 49 on the list. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through them all, but just to give you a sh shape of it. Kuwait is number 49th. Evangelism is illegal in Kuwait. You know that? Converts to Christ face legal problems, intimidation from Muslims, police monitoring. The list just goes on. You go to the top 10, you find countries like Eritrea, Yemen, Libya, Somalia, where truly horrific conditions prevail for Christians. I asked um, uh, Deacon Nate Douglas to pray for our brothers and sisters in North Korea and Afghanistan because they're the top two on the list. North Korea, uh, this is a quote from the report, any North Korean court following Jesus is at immediate risk of imprisonment, brutal torture, and death. But Afghanistan wins, <laughs> if wins is the right description, uh, especially since the Taliban takeover in August um, 2021, since it's now worse there, even than North Korea. Taking a global picture, some statistics, in 2021, 5,600 Christians were known to be murdered for their faith. That was actually quite a good year. Normally, the number is seven or 8,000, and it was in the early 2000s. 6,000 were detained or imprisoned, 4,000 kidnapped, and 5,000 churches or other Christian buildings were burned or otherwise attacked and destroyed. And what's remarkable, actually, if you look down this list, you recognize some countries on the list, and I was looking through it, and it's clear that some, in fact, many of our brothers and sisters are, are really determinedly clinging to Christ. And it's different, depends where you are. In some countries, it's literally you know, a few thousand or even a few hundred Christians. So, an example, a quotation from a a new Christian called Nala in Somalia, she said, quote, Jesus has changed me. Previously, I didn't have happiness. Now I have joy. They called me weak. And that's true. I knew nothing at all until I came to know Jesus. 
Nala from Somalia. There are other places, of course, where the populations are quite large, um, and large numbers of Christians, like Nigeria, Central African Republic, Mozambique. You might wonder, how could Christians be persecuted when they're 50 or 60% of the population? The answer is a very small number of Muslim extremists, like Boko Haram, can target Christians. And so even though you've got lots of um, Christian friends in your churches, their churches might even be larger than us in some cases, in some of those countries, you know that you're at risk of uh, attack, imprisonment, even murder, and in all those countries like Nigeria and Mozambique and Central African Republic, Christians suffered that fate just last year. In fact, the fastest evangelical church, fastest growing evangelical church in the world, do you know where it is? Which country has the fastest growing evangelical church in the world? It's Iran. One of the fewest hardcore theocratic Muslim states in the world. It's ninth on the list. So there's this amazing fruitfulness, even in those places where the conditions are frankly unimaginable. And it makes a striking contrast with our situation here in America, does it not? At All Saints in particular, and in America in general, we've enjoyed tremendous blessings from God. Just think about the situation in the US. Despite some irritations in recent years, this is still, still one of the safest places to be a Christian anywhere in the world. Certainly, we are collectively among the wealthiest Christians who've ever lived. And there's actually a lot of research about this from mission agencies and so on who are trying to work out how to finance work globally. Um, America, just think of Protestants for the time being. America has about 13 or 14% of the world's Protestants, but over 70% of the Protestant income in the world. Think about that. You've got 20 people uh, and a cake, and you take a slice of three quarters of it and give it to three of the people. Roughly speaking, that's what the Lord has done with the distribution of income across the world. And at All Saints specifically, I don't need to tell you about the tremendous blessings that we've enjoyed here. Uh, a wonderful building that we've been able to worship in freely for a decade and a half. Uh, a large, growing, enthusiastic congregation. We can enjoy a fellowship meal, and there's no danger whatsoever of the police coming knocking at the door and taking any of us, Pastor Neil, me, or any of you guys away. And we're surrounded by Christian infrastructure. Let me tell you, this is one thing that makes being a Christian here easier, even than in other places like the UK, where uh, my uh, background is from. Christian schools and Christian colleges and many business owners openly professing their Christian convictions and tremendous resources and books and so on and so forth. There's so much we've got going for us here as Christians. And that's a good job because, frankly, the opportunities and needs around us are quite great. If you just think about you know, DFW, fourth largest metro area in the U.S. after New York and Chicago and L.A., um, large areas where there's new people moving in and the Christian witness... For, despite the numbers of Christians, the Christian witness is frankly and sadly somewhat shallow. Huge areas of the DFW area that need church plants. and uh, Think about our broader denomination, the need for pastoral training, uh, the need to support smaller struggling congregations, the need to... Um, well, we've got dozens of churches from outside the CREC interested in joining us. And What tremendous blessings and what tremendous opportunities we have... It's, the Lord has given to us a vastly disproportionate share of the money and a vastly disproportionate share of the resources and a vastly disproportionate share of the infrastructure and the safety. And from those to whom much is given, much is required, Jesus says. 
And so that's the background for our consideration of this text in uh, Joshua uh, 17, because what you notice if you read this uh, is that we meet here two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, the people of Joseph, those two tribes were the sons of Joseph, who are in a similar position to us in terms of the privileges and opportunities that they enjoyed. And they responded to that in just about the worst way imaginable. And that's really what I want to show you today, uh, to show you what we must not do to follow the example of Ephraim and Manasseh. They had a vast inheritance from the Lord, and they just complained about it. And they had tremendous opportunities for the future. If you were uh, an Ephraimite or a Manassite in one of those two tribes, you, if you were thinking straight, you should have been thinking, my goodness, what a glorious prospect to set before us, even by comparison with the other blessed tribes of Israel. And instead of uh, making the best of it, they complained and they failed to take the opportunities that were set before them. Just a brief note, you remember the background to the two tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. They're the two sons of Joseph. Roughly speaking, you've got 12 sons of Jacob, of whom Joseph is the 11th out of 12. And those 12 tribes roughly correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel, those 12 sons, sorry. But it's a bit different because Levi is sort of singled out for sanctuary service, so that leaves 11. And in order to make up to 12 again, Joseph is split in two, and that kind of fits with Joseph's special place in Genesis, and it fits with the, the, um, uh, the response of the Levites to the... Uh, the desecration involved in the golden calf in in, um, uh, Exodus 32 and so on. So bottom line is you've got here two tribes coming from one brother. And the question, we're in that part of the book of Joshua where everyone is having their inheritance allocated and we get to the Ephraim and Manasseh section. So chapter 16, verse 1, before our reading, the allotment of the people of Joseph, so it's both tribes, you have Ephraim first, then you have the people of Manasseh in the section I've just read. And so I want to show you two aspects of their response, which frankly leave uh, something to be desired, and then we'll see what, uh, along the way and at the end especially, we'll see what we might learn from this. So notice a couple of aspects of the response, uh, or the, the inheritance that these people received and how they responded. The first, their inheritance was vast, absolutely huge, and filled with overflowing blessings from the living God, and yet they still complained about it. And it's encapsulated in verse 14. This is the the fourth of the so-called land-grant narratives, the little conversations that drop into these long sections of lists in this portion of the book of Joshua. Look with me at verse 14. Then the people of Joseph, both those tribes, can you see it, verse 14, spoke to Joshua saying, Hmm, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, though I am a numerous people, and since all along the Lord has blessed me. Can you see that complaint? And it reflects the fact that back in chapter 16, they did get, formally speaking, one lot. The Twelve lots were drawn, like, you know, drawing straws or whatever, and this pair of tribes received one. Okay. But, <laughs> when you look a bit closer... Uh, you might think, oh, it's a bit unfair, actually, because there's 12 tribes, and they only got one between the two of them. You look a bit closer, and you realize that, in truth, they really had nothing to complain about. And the bottom line is, you know, like, if we knew any geography, then verses 7 to 11 would just be shouting and screaming at us. But just look down, and I'll talk you through it. The territory of Manasseh, this is just one of those two tribes, reached from Asher up in the northwest to Michmethath down in the southeast, which is east of Shechem. Right? And then what happens is the boundary goes south, so they've got even more space. Uh, inhabitants of Entapur, and then there's this long list in verses 8 through 11, I won't go through it all, the extensive description of the inheritance of these two tribes, 
Ephraim and Manasseh. And like I said, we don't realize how significant this is because none of us know much about ancient sort of late Bronze Age geography in the Near East. Um, so I've produced a little map for you. Now, somebody actually asked me, a couple of people said, why don't you put, print a map in the order of worship um, uh, so that we can <laughs> understand what it is you're talking about? So don't, don't say I never do anything for you, okay? Here it is. Now, if you get the little um, beige-colored sheet out from the insert in your order of worship, you can see the inheritances of the 12 tribes of Israel according to the book of Joshua. Now, you can see roughly right there in the middle, um, Manasseh, yeah? The, the really big one that stretches all the way across the page, and just south of it you see Ephraim. And roughly, you can sort of trace out, can't you, the size of the uh, rest of the tribes. And, oh, I don't know, I was, I was talking to um, Mrs. Loki, uh, church administrator, on, was it Thursday or Friday? I was like, I wonder what fraction this is. So I, I printed a copy out, and I went downstairs, and I said, I need a second opinion, Mrs. Loki. Would you tell me roughly what percentage you think this area is of the whole thing? And what do you say, 40, 45%? I'm going to say 45%, she said. So blame her, but it's certainly not less than 40. It's probably not quite 50, is it? These two tribes have got almost half the land between them. Now, according to the book of Numbers, Numbers 26, 54, the land is supposed to be in proportion to their numbers. There's the big tribe, big inheritance, small tribe, small inheritance. Well, how big are these tribes on the list? If you put them in order, 1 through 12. Manasseh is 6th on the list, about mid-table, and Ephraim is 11th. The only tribe smaller than Ephraim is Simeon, and that's because so many of their uh, people died during the plague in Numbers 25, for which a Simeonite was responsible. So you'd expect Manasseh to get something kind of mid-table, average size, and Ephraim to get you know, something fairly small. And you look at this and think, really? My goodness. You add them together, they're just about the biggest tribe, but they're not half of Israel. They're about 14%, actually, of Israel in numbers. In other words, Manasseh and Ephraim together constitute about as much of Israel as Protestants in America constituted the Protestant church worldwide. Just keep that statistic in your head. We'll need it in a few minutes' time. But it's not just the size of their inheritance. Look at the places that are within their territory. Ephraim contains Shiloh, which later will be um, uh, a place where the ark will be uh, located for many generations. It contains Bethel, another important city. Manasseh contains Gilgal down in the south, which was the base camp throughout the whole of the uh, days of Joshua for the people of Israel. It contains Mount Carmel, just a slightly important place during the days of Elijah. Um, it contains Shechem. I mean, it, stuff that doesn't happen at Shechem in the book of Genesis kind of isn't worth mentioning. Shechem is so significant in the book of Genesis. It's a big deal at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24. It's a political center during the book of Judges. It's where um, Rehoboam was crowned king in 1 Kings 12. It's probably the same place where Jesus met the Samaritan woman, Sychar, in John 4. is probably Shechem. It's a momentously significant place. They haven't got some little tin pot villages somewhere. They've got tourist attractions. They've got central locations in the plan of God. But above all, the thing that stands out to me here is the economic opportunities. Not all of life is about money and financial resources, but frankly, some of it is. And when it comes to economic opportunities, uh, material blessings from the Lord, Ephraim and Manasseh have it coming out of their ears. Just look at a few um, details. Look, and think, you've got to think yourself back into a early Iron Age, late Bronze Age mindset here, what would it mean to you to have 
on the east side of the Jordan, all those glorious rolling hills. Large area of land. It's bigger than Gad and Reuben put together in the land of Gilgal, over the, in the land um, um, on the east of, uh, not Gilgal, uh, the land on the east of the Jordan, uh, Gilead, sorry. Majestic rolling hills, green pastures for your flocks. And then you look in um, a bit more detail at what's in that area on the right-hand side of the map in the east. It's actually described in Joshua 13, the end of Joshua 13, uh, it says, verse 29, Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh, so just half the tribe living in that vast area, and their region extended uh, from Mahanaim through all Bashan, the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan. Now, they get this, 60 cities. That's really interesting, because it seems what happened, right? There are 60 cities in that area of Manasseh on the east of the Jordan. Why would you have all those cities? Well, the background... Um, We've got time. The background is in uh, the book of Numbers, in Numbers 32. If you look really carefully, this is when the, the eastern tribes, the so-called Transjordan tribes, requested this eastern inheritance. And Reuben and Gad initially come to uh, Moses and they say, look, we've got loads of flocks. Could we have an inheritance over here? And they have this conversation. It's like, yeah, yeah you can, as long as you come over and fight with us. And you say, yeah, that's fine. Um, but Manasseh is not mentioned. Like, why is Manasseh not mentioned? They're not mentioned at the beginning because they don't have that many flocks. They've probably got the same kind of number as other tribes, but they don't have loads and loads of livestock. So why would they want an inheritance there? You discover in Joshua 13, because they plan to take cities there. Think, think, think. Who's the economist? Is there an economist? There's one. Why would you want 60 cities in an area that is prolific for agricultural produce? They're growing wheat, they're producing wool, they're producing linen and flax, and they're producing olives and so on. Why would you want cities there? Answer is secondary industries. They produce wool, we'll make fabric. They produce wheat, we'll make bread. They produce olives, we'll make olive oil. Now, where's the money? Anybody who's ever worked in ranching, have you ever been frustrated by the, the amount of money you get selling a cow compared to the amount of money that we have to pay for beef if you go to Central Market? Where's the money? Right, so Gad and Reuben were the farmers, and Manasseh opened Central Market <laughs> in 60 cities to export. They, had, they are sitting on an absolute gold mine of financial and economic resources. And more than that even, look, look at the location. All the way along the River Jordan, almost from the very northern to the very southern point, they've got um, access to the river, so irrigation, drinking water. They have a huge stretch of coast, which includes two of the very few ports on that entire stretch of coast. In the south, um, Joppa is actually, it should be located on the river, which forms the border between um, Dan and Manasseh. It's the, the, the brook Kanar. That's one of very few ports in the south. Go up to the north and you see Manasseh gets that little bit that pokes out. Well, that's where a modern Haifa is. Two ports, trade with other nations. And speaking of trade, you know that Israel is located in a very strategic place uh, geographically. If you want to get from Africa, anywhere in Africa, to anywhere in Asia, or to the east, to Babylon, Mesopotamia, India, China, anywhere, you have to go through Canaan. And the route came to be known as the Fertile Crescent. The, the only other alternative is to go across the desert where you're going to die of thirst. So you go up the eastern side of the Mediterranean, straight through Canaan, 
paying taxes and tolls and trading on the way, yes, and then you'd head east or you'd head north into what we now call Turkey and Syria and so on, right? So what's the one tribe that you can't avoid going through on the route? Manasseh. You could dodge Gad, you could dodge Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali. There's only one tribe whose inheritance stretches all the way from the coast of the Mediterranean to the eastern desert. So in every single way, they, if you had money to invest in 1400 BC, okay, and you had to like, which tribe shall I buy shares in? You would buy shares in Joseph or Manasseh specifically. Like, these guys are going to be increasing the dividend every year for 500 years. All we need to do is put money in and just rub our hands because this is a tremendous blessing from the Lord. And now, I mentioned finance. Well, remember that it's not just about money. I said it's not just, it is about uh, material stability, but it's more than that. The land, remember, is not just a place to live and a place to farm. The land of Canaan is that space on the surface of the globe which is the locus of the Lord's blessing to you. If you don't have land, you have no access to life among the people of God. That's why the daughters of Zelophehad made the fuss they did, rightly, about getting their inheritance. They didn't want to lose out. If you have land, you have access to the blessings of being a part of God's covenant people. And Manasseh and Ephraim have it coming out of their ears. In contemporary, church, in contemporary terms, you might put it like this. Um, the Lord has blessed the church richly, wonderfully, and gloriously in Christ. And not just materially, but with the freedom to worship and the fellowship that we enjoy and all the, the gifts that we have to serve one another. But who has he blessed the most? Come on. Iran? Somalia? From a certain perspective, they would probably describe their suffering as blessings, correct? But where is it easier to be a believer? Where is it easiest to see how kind the Lord has been to us in giving us the fruit of the growth of the kingdom which has taken place in this land for hundreds of years? It's right here. It's right here. It's really interesting, the 14% the, the figure. It's 14% of the people of Israel enjoying 45% of the inheritance. 14% of the Protestant church enjoying 70 plus percent of the material blessings from the Lord. What's, what's the implications of that? Now notice, just to, just to highlight what, somewhere we may need to talk about this more in future, the implication is not that Manasseh must redistribute its land to all the other tribes. Some of you are uh, old enough or uh, jaded enough to have read Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Hands up if you've read that book. Um, Good, most of you haven't. Well, that's good to hear. Um, uh, Ron Sider um, uh, was a, a well-meaning Christian and a terrible economist who, who insisted, among other things, that really redistribution was, it was kind of Christian socialism, basically. Well, no, it's very interesting here that Manasseh is not required to give their land away. What is required of them is work, is sacrifice, is service. Now, no doubt generosity. No doubt generosity is part of what should have been the DNA of this tribe. But they should have been a, 
just as they were a paradigmatic example of having received the Lord's kindness. You want to see what, what God can do to people when he's being really kind? Go to Manasseh. So they should be a paradigmatic example of the Lord's kindness to others. You want to see what the Lord can do when he wants to create a, a glorious and free nation of people able to worship him? Go to Texas. Seriously. Nala's never seen that. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to show her what, I don't know what she'd say. You want, and so, it's not, oh, well, we should probably sell bits of Texas to, some, no, 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 no. But what are we going to do with the blessings that the Lord has given us? And the response, frankly, in chapter 17, verse 14, why have you only given me one lot and one portion? <laughs> really, please. Why have you made my life so miserable? <laughs> Can you see? You see why Judges 17 speaks so powerfully to the situation in which we found ourselves. But not only do you see this ingratitude, you see a remarkable lack of commitment to do what they're called to do. Even before this conversation in verse 12, uh, the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And that's really interesting because it makes you think, well, what was stopping them? Was it just they weren't strong enough? It looks initially, doesn't it, in verse 12, like they weren't strong enough. But verse 13 puts the idea to bed. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out. In other words, what the numerous commentators have made this observation. The fact that they were able to enslave the Canaanites means that they could have fulfilled the Lord's commandment to drive them out, but chose not to. We'd rather compromise and make our lives easier because, hey, you've got a lot of land to farm. <laughs> Forced labor. Yeah? Laziness, in other words, and lack of commitment to what the Lord was doing by giving them the land, that is to bring judgment against the idolatry of Canaan. But then it continues in verse 15. Joshua said to them, look, if you're a numerous people, he kind of calls their bluff, doesn't he? You look at it. You go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Now, the, the region he's talking about is the region um, just to the left of where it says River Jordan and, and north a little bit of that. So just south of Beth Shean and east of Terza on your maps. Basically, that land hadn't been allocated up to this point. And Joshua says, well, okay, you can have that as well. Go, it's, it's all forest. It's hilly, wooded. Um, you're going to have to work hard, but you can have that too. Um, verse 16. And they said, well, that, the, the whole hill country, that's the meaning of the, the distinction between hill country of Ephraim, which had already been given, and the, the hill country. The whole hill country, all that space is not enough for us. And you want to say, well, what, okay, there's plenty of place that isn't in the hills. Um, to the west of the hill country is the central region um, called the Shafila, which is lower rolling hills, good for farming. And then there's the plain out towards the, the west. So you've got all that space. What's wrong with that? Well, they've got an answer, haven't they? And all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have got chariots of iron. Me not meaning chariots that are made of iron. Iron, we're at the dawn of the Iron Age, remember? So uh, iron is just being uh, exploited by technologically advanced peoples used for armor, used for wheels and wheel bearings. So in other words, their chariots are bigger, stronger, faster than ours. We can't, we can't possibly fight against them. You're full of excuses. Like, yeah, I know we've got all this land and it's such a drag because the Canaanites are so, oh, it's so difficult. It's so difficult. What should we do, pastor? Like, you get a grip, that's what you do which is what Joshua says to them, you notice? And the shall in here is, it's not a prediction, because actually this isn't done by the Manassites. You'd notice in Judges chapter 1, the parallel passage, it describes how they didn't do this. 
the shall is an instruction. This is what you should do. Look, verse 17. Joshua says, look, to the house of Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh, both tribes, you are a numerous people. Between them, they are actually the biggest single community. They have the most manpower. The great, you have great power. You shall not have one allotment only. Have the other one. Have a second allotment. Let's break the rules for you. You can have a whole hill country. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. In other words, go and get on with it. Like you've got all these opportunities, which is to say all these blessings from the Lord. Go and work them and be fruitful in them and possess it to its farthest borders. You shall drive out the Canaanites. You think chariots of iron are too strong for the Lord? Though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. In other words, if you will just live out the faith that frankly ought to be displayed by people who've seen the blessing of the Lord so richly, then you will have all that you've asked for. You're the large tribe. You're the guys with resources. So you, please, get your act together and conquer the giants. You're the wealthy church. Correct? So let's hear this word from Jesus, Joshua. You're the ones to whom so much has been given. Much is required. Let me just um, make some observations about how we might, in practical terms, see the implications of this. Uh, First, let me make explicit the point I just hinted at, that we should see this in a, a broader Christological context, within the framework of the new covenant under which we live. The Lord Jesus Christ has blessed his bride in Christ, just as the Lord blessed the whole community of the people of Israel with the land that he gave them in the days of Joshua. But the blessing is uneven. It's unevenly distributed. The gifts are distributed unevenly, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The resources and opportunities are distributed unevenly. Some people will be imprisoned if they preach and live out their faith in public. Other people, hmm, not so much. And the aim or rather the imperative that lies upon us, is not a kind of simplistic guilt-trip redistribution program. That's not what's what's called for. What's called for is to take responsibility for using that talent we've been given. Think of the talent parable of Jesus in Matthew 25. What does he... What does he commend the man to whom he gave five talents for? He didn't say, you did a great job, well done for giving it all away. He says, no, you've taken your five talents and made five more. That's what's required of us. Sacrifice and commitment to make a return on the kingdom blessings we've received. So now, let me point to some specific aspects of our lives and vocation. And here, so here's the point at which really what we all want to do is, is sit down for you know, 45 minutes or an hour over lunch and think, okay, so how does this speak to me? What are my, the different aspects of my calling in which I could hear the challenge that Manasseh and Ephraim failed to meet? That would be a great conversation starter. Slightly wordy one, isn't it? Bit of a word salad conversation starter. Word salad. Sorry, don't worry about it. Salad. That's okay. Um, but think, I don't know, maybe you're working. Maybe you're a student. Like, are, are you known, if you, at your, the company you work at, are you known as the most cheerful, hardworking, committed, faithful model of not just doing the job, but people, people, it's obvious to your co-workers that there's something different about you. 
Or do you get swept up in the kind of tsunami of resentment and backbiting and office politics? And what about students, some of you students? I mean, are, are you cheerfully embracing all of those opportunities? Opportunities, not problems that are laid before you every day from Monday through Friday. Imagine, I mean, it, it's really striking to think about Imagine being a personal spokesman to the Somali church, all 417 of them, this week. You have to go, and they, for some reason they're allowed to gather together, and they say, so um, how, how are you guys doing in, um, in America? And you, you well, uh, yes, it, it turns out that we view pornography at a rate slightly higher than our unbelieving neighbors. We've all got Bibles, and some of us read them. Which is, and that's true. That's what you'd have to say if you were telling the truth. Isn't it shameful? I want to encourage you, building on that, to know yourself. Let me explain what I mean. Um, whenever the Word of God delivers something of a broadside, the danger is that it completely takes out all the ships that are already struggling a little bit and doing their best and bounces off all the ships that really need to hear it. <laughs> By which I mean, for example, um, there'll be some homeschooling mums here who really are, you are doing your best and you're acutely conscious of, you know, oh, I wish I was doing this and I wish I was doing that. And, oh, and, and I look at this kind of combined picture of what everybody else seems to be doing with their children. I'm such a failure, I should just go and, oh, I should just give up. No, no, no. I say this actually to the students on the Bible and Theology course quite frequently. You are not competing against somebody else, you're competing against yesterday's you. I, I, I do want all of us to hear this challenge. And all of us start from wherever we start from. And so the, the challenge is, okay, well, not feel guilty, do nothing, but okay, feel the challenge, cheerfully and prayerfully do something. And come and get help, come and get advice, come and talk to Pastor Neil or me or talk to somebody else who's, who's facing similar challenges to you. And the same thing that could be said about um, that particular calling could be said about so many others, couldn't it? And let me speak just very briefly in closing about our opportunities as a church. I alluded to this at the beginning. But just think of the, what lies before us for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Church planting. We talked about this at our previous members' meeting at the start of this year. you have any idea how hard that is? Some of you know exactly how hard that is. How much sacrifice, how much hard work it actually takes to, to reach a new area for Christ. And all you can remember is when it was like really nice back at All Saints and then we meet in this somewhat less beautiful venue because it's all we could find or it's all we could afford. We'll have similar questions arising actually as and when if the Lord blesses us with a new venue to meet in to accommodate our growth and stay together. I guarantee it won't be as beautiful as this one. How do I know that? Because this is about the most beautiful church I've seen in this city, right? So, and it's just going to be interesting, isn't it? Because all of us care about those aesthetic considerations, and rightly so. But, so you've got to go and explain that to Nala on the last day, and I want to know what you're going to say if that's the thing that stopped us from reaching a new bunch of people for Jesus. Uh, our denomination... We just come back from a presbytery meeting earlier this week. It's tremendously encouraging and really eye-opening to see the challenges that lie before us, everything from uh, supporting churches that are smaller and struggling 
uh, pastoral training. We have a dozen or more churches in our denomination looking for a pastor. Like where they can, they're not going to come out for thin air. Pastors don't grow on trees. They have to be trained. And it's expensive to do that. All of it's costly, and it's what Manasseh and Ephraim ought to be doing. Like, where would the seminary be located? It would be located in a place where they've got the resources to build it. But not a place where they can build it without sacrifice, because there's nowhere that you can build it without sacrifice. Back to Nala, as we conclude. Is it, I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful? Oh, like on the last day... I've often wondered about the kind of conversations we will have with our persecuted brothers and sisters on the last day. It's like, so, so uh, where were you a Christian? Oh, I was, I was in England and then I was in America. Oh, yeah, I thought I could tell because you've got no scars. <laughs> um, so what did you do? I'm like, what do you mean? Well, you were kind of like Ephraim and Manasseh, so what did you do? Because we had this sermon from our pastor before he was abducted and never seen again. Cause, and he said... Um, well, from those to whom much is given, much is required. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank and praise you for having given us so much and ask that you would work within us by your grace to produce a harvest from these abundant blessings. Guard us from superficial and childish and self-serving and self-centered thinking. Guard us from false guilt. Guide us instead, we pray, in the paths of cheerful sacrifice and commitment that we may be like the man in the parable, the man with five talents, because truly he's the man we must identify with. May we be among those who return by your grace on what you've blessed us with. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.